Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to another episode. Let's not beat around the bush here. Yes, my guest today, Dr. Jeff Seal, works for the corporate agricultural giant Monsanto. Yes, that Monsanto, that Monsanto you hear in the news for many of the wrong reasons. I definitely want to acknowledge the controversy of hosting Monsanto. I get it. I understand some of the history. That said, Monsanto is a major player on the agricultural scene. They will be a major agricultural presence in the years and decades to come. And in this conversation, I have a substantive talk with Jeff about Monsanto's role in adapting to climate change. To hear a bit more about the history of how Monsanto got on my podcast, listen in. Jeff and I dig into that story. Okay, other news. I just got back from the American Society of Landscape Architects conference in Los Angeles. What a cool event. I spent four days talking to landscape architects and learning what they are doing on adaptation. That episode should be out in the next week or so. All right, some additional housekeeping. Thank you to those adapters supporting America Adapts. We are now a nonprofit organization and accepting tax-deductible donations. Go to americadapts.org, and you can easily find the donate page where you can give one-time donations or, better yet, a recurring monthly donation. For the price of a large cafe latte a month, you can support a podcast bringing you the best and brightest in the world of adaptation. For foundations and corporate donors looking to learn more about the podcast and potentially sponsoring on-location podcasts, please contact me at americadapts at gmail.com. So in future episodes, I'll be doing my first live recording in conjunction with the DC PodFest in mid-November. I'll be at the Bar DC9 on stage in front of a group of science-loving millennials. Check out my Facebook page for more details. I'm also talking with Chad Nelson, the executive director of the Surfrider Foundation, followed by an episode talking about how snow leopards are adapting to climate change in Central Asia. It is a packed schedule through the end of the year. Okay, let's get this podcast started. Welcome back, adapters. On this week's episode, my guest is Jeff Seal, Monsanto's Agricultural Environmental Strategy Lead and Associate Science Fellow. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. And now, did I get that? That was the sort of title that I was given. Is that the correct title? That is the correct title as of about seven months ago. All right. Great. All right. I want to start this off. And as I think some of my listeners are probably like, wait a second. So you work at Monsanto and it's that Monsanto. And I'm sure you deal with this all the time. And we had a brief conversation beforehand about this, but I really want to address this kind of giant elephant in the room. Yet this is Monsanto. And I have to tell you, my listeners are probably thinking, what is, what am I up to again? You know, I've had a few controversial guests on and I find those are some of the most enjoyable conversations. And, and you specifically, I don't think are a controversial guest, but it's mm -hmm. Monsanto. So I wanted to give a little bit of history of why you're on here. And it, and I, I'm doing this partly for my listeners' sake too. So I get contacted by PR people just a couple of weeks ago. I was got contacted by someone from the Copper Association and they wanted me to have some copper people on. And I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> and then I, and it's actually been a while and I heard from the, the PR firm that works with Monsanto saying that Monsanto was interested in coming on the podcast and, you know, clear up if I'm, I'm describing this wrong. And if, and I'll just have to tell you when I first heard, I, wait a sec, Monsanto, you know, they want to come on the podcast. And I, I was a little taken aback, but I was very intrigued too. And so they told me that some folks at Monsanto, or maybe it was just you, I think it was you originally, you actually listened to the podcast. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. 
when I took this role about seven or eight months ago, the the whole climate space was something new to me. So I've been at Monsanto for uh, a little over 20 years, working mostly in the R&D organization in, in different aspects of that organization, um, but have always been interested in, in sustainability and poverty issues and was contacted about uh, this role in environmental strategy. And so it turned out to be a really good fit. And I took the role and then I was thinking, oh, I need to get up to speed on what's going on in climate science, what's going on in climate policy. And the first thing I did was go and search for podcasts because I like to listen to podcasts. And yours was one of the first ones uh, I came upon. So I started listening uh, and really enjoyed the conversations that you have. And so there was a talk internally about opportunities with outreach and and other uh, podcast opportunities. And so I said, hey, I stumbled across uh, this America Adapts podcast. And it's really interesting and really engaging. And I think it would be a good place for me to go and have a chat. And that's how we initiated it. And here we are today. So I'm really looking forward to it. Well, here we are. And to be perfectly honest, when I heard that you kind of randomly found it, and that's great that you did look up climate change and it showed up with podcasts. You're never quite sure how people find it. And so I was thinking, gosh, people at Monsanto are listening to the podcast. They're learning some things. And that's a, uh, that's a good thing. And just a little bit more history. And so I, I'm in a nonprofit organization and I have an advisory committee. It's, uh, you coming on, it's like, I just wanted to make sure I was doing all the right things. And I ran it by my advisory committee and they had some deep reservations. I just want to throw that out there. But again, I want to have conversations about this issue because it's going to be such a big issue. And I think even non-typical conversations are interesting. And in the controversial ones that I've had, the feedback that I've gotten from most folks, they're very, they thought it was really interesting and it's the type of voices that they don't normally hear. And I'm not necessarily lumping what you with those previous two, but there is controversy associated with Monsanto. And you're you're not, uh, I guess, naive to that fact. And so Ooh. here you are. And I know there's groups out there that are very critical of what Monsanto do, does. And I'm just not here to have that conversation. I, w- I really want to talk about your role in adaptation. And Monsanto's a giant corporation, and they're going to be here for a long time. And if they can play a positive role in how society adapts to climate change, I think that's worth exploring. And so I just want to give my listeners a little bit of background. And just so you know, I'm not accepting any money from Monsanto for this episode. You know, some people, be, hey, he's getting a big fat check from them. That's not nope, happening. Absolutely not. Just that clear that air. Okay. So I, I wanted to just get that out there. And since we did, and I think you get a nice little background uh, about how you found the podcast, let's just start off with, in case for those people out there who don't know, what is Monsanto? So Monsanto is a global agricultural company, and we focus on seeds and genomics and bringing uh, technologies to farmers to uh, help improve their productivity, uh, help to uh, provide food to uh, a growing population. And agriculture uh, in today's world is positioned in a pretty unique space. When you think about the issues that face society today, the big issues of hungers, 10 billion people are going to live on this planet by 2050. Uh, There are a billion people that are starving today, so there's already hunger given what we can produce. and then the effects of uh, people that are hungry are also 
often folks that live in poverty. And so those, those issues are intertwined. And then on top of that is the issue of climate change. And so, you know, agriculture is, is positioned in a place that, that can impact uh, those three large issues that, that face society today. And it's one of the reasons that I was really excited uh, to take on this role. Monsanto, you, you, and I, and I, Bet they're looked at very differently. So you have the domestic agricultural market, and then you look at international agriculture. And so some of those issues that you're talking about, yes, there are people hungry in the U.S., but it's a much different kind of beast overseas. And so would you consider Monsanto more of an international organization when it comes to your emphasis on, uh, I guess, your climate change focus? Our biggest markets are in the United States and South America. Um, but when we think about the technologies that we can bring to bear to farmers, we think about uh, our farmer customers around the world. And so typically what happens is that the technologies that, that we develop are applied most of the time in the sort of North American market, but rapidly adapted to other parts of the world. So South America is our, our second largest uh, place of operations. And so you can see how you know, technologies are, are originally developed primarily for use in the United States, North America, uh, then uh, get transferred because the, you know, genetics, the hybrids, the things are, are different in, in different parts of the world. And so, you know, it takes time to, develop those and uh, for specific geographical locations. Well, I guess maybe we should just focus, and, and if you want to bring up some international examples, please do, but what do you think the biggest issues facing agriculture are, at least in the United States and North America? I, th- I think when we think about, especially in, in regards to climate change, it, it really becomes how do we produce enough food on an acre of land with fewer inputs. And so that that's sort of the the driver behind our sustainability efforts is we need to be able to produce enough to feed the growing population. We need to do it efficiently uh, and we need to do it with, with as few inputs as possible. You know, that's things like water efficiency, nutrient use, so nitrogen fertilizers, those types of things, chemical inputs. You know, we want to try to do that with uh, as few inputs as possible. All right. So I, I know Monsanto took a position on the Paris Agreement. You guys came out, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, in support of it. And there was a lot of major corporations. Is that accurate? That is true. So, you know, we believe that the science is sound uh, behind climate change, that it's real, that we have a role to play in that. Uh, and that, you know, because of that, we are uniquely positioned in the agricultural space to to help address those issues. And we care about it because it impacts uh, farmers and our farmers are our customers and they see the impacts of climate change, you know, every day on their farms. And so it's it's our responsibility uh, to do the things that we can do uh, to help uh, farmers deal with that. And I, I guess related to the to the Paris Climate Accords, at the same time that the, the the Paris Accords were announced, we publicly made a commitment as a company to become carbon neutral uh, by the year 2021 on our operations. And so, you know, we have a carbon footprint. And over the last couple of years, we've developed uh, a multi-tiered approach to reduce that carbon footprint to zero by 2021. 
Donald Trump famously pulled out of the Paris Agreement. And did Monsanto feel the need to say say anything after the fact? Does that come up, or is it just it's now water under the bridge? I think the way that we think about we think about climate change is, you know, it's taken us a long time to get here, and even taking all the measures that the nations of the world have agreed uh, to take in trying to solve this problem, that's also a long-term issue. And and so, you know, the issue of climate change is longer than just any single administration. And so we have to keep our eyes on the longer game. How do we deal with this? And, you know, administrations will change over time and they will have different policies. And those policies may or may not impact the kinds of things that we want to do. But we are committed to helping our customers deal with this and, you know, helping society deal with this. Because, you know, when you think about contributors to global greenhouse gas emissions, agriculture as an industry is the number two emitter. And so agriculture is often seen as part of the problem. And so, you know, by taking this bold leadership position, we're the only company in the ag space that has actually announced a goal of becoming carbon neutral. You know, we want to help change agriculture in such a way that uh, we adopt more climate-friendly practices um, and thereby also help to reduce uh, the impact of agriculture on uh, greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. Okay, so 2021 is just around the corner. You must have some internal metrics. Are you, what, do you have a percentage of your goal? Are you almost there? We In two years, uh, we've developed a plan and we have a strategy in place that we uh, are confident will actually get us beyond our goal of becoming carbon neutral. You know, it's still relatively early in in the process. We have outlined the steps that we're going to take. We've already taken lots of steps on our in within our internal operations. So we do things like you know, change all of the lights to LED lights, gradually switch our fleet of cars over to to hybrid cars, um, changing out boilers and plants, working on solar panels in Hawaii, those types of internal projects. Those are all ongoing and we're making uh, good progress on that. We will be releasing uh, toward the end of the year, the beginning of next year, our annual sustainability report, which will have the the most up-to-date metrics, which are just coming in now. The other part of that uh, commitment was to reduce the uh, carbon footprint of our seed uh, production operations. So on the farms where we actually contract with growers to uh, grow the seed that we sell in the following season. So uh, we committed to driving that to zero. And then the next Six to eight weeks, we'll be announcing the progress on that. I can say that we're well on our way to that, to meeting that goal and expect to exceed that goal by 2021. Um, and then, you know, the other part, as I mentioned, was in the commitment, we want to be carbon neutral on our own footprint, but we also committed to helping agriculture become more uh, climate friendly. And so, you know, the third part of our approach to doing that um, is to really work with our uh, grower customers to help them implement agronomic practices that are climate friendly. Okay, so I don't necessarily want to put you on the spot here, but it, it, from my own homework on Monsanto, there, there's sort of four pillars of how you guys are addressing climate change. I don't know if you could speak to all four. I could read some here, but there's a couple that I really want to dig into. So should I just read them or 
Sure, go ahead. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to put you on that. So the first one is collaborating with others to advance climate change adaptation and mitigation. The second one is reducing our environmental impact and achieving carbon neutral operations by 2021, which you just described, and then promoting carbon neutral crop production methods, and you sort of alluded to that working with your partners. And then the final one is driving the fight against climate change in the agriculture industry. And I think the first and the fourth ones – Obviously, this is America adapts and focusing on adaptation that I, I would really like to dig into. And in regards to collaborating with others to advance climate change adaptation, and we just chatted about this before. And again, focusing on the adaptation side, can you sort of give some examples? How, what kind of partners are you working with? How are you doing that? One of the, the most exciting partnerships that we're a part of is a partnership that's called the Soil Health Partnership. And it's a, a collaboration, a group of folks that was between us and primarily the National Corn Growers Association. And the objective of that partnership is to set up demonstration farms. So we find farmers that are open and willing to uh, test out some of these agronomic practices that will help improve the health of their soil. So soil health is a really a good place to work in this space because it has a direct benefit to the farmer. It has a direct impact on adaptation, which we can talk about more in detail. And then it also has a mitigation effect. And, and so as part of that partnership, uh, we currently have enrolled across the Midwest, uh, a, a broad swath of the Midwest, about 110 or so farms that we partner with. And so we work uh, within this partnership to uh, work with these farmers and implementing some of these agronomic practices that, that can uh, help improve the health of their soil. You, a lot of companies, they focus on mitigation. How are they going to be carbon neutral or reducing their carbon footprint? But adaptation is sort of a, a tougher nut to crack. And have you guys actually developed a strategic plan around adaptation? And just, a, you know, it's a very different thing than mitigation. And so even that partnership you just described, what's the bigger picture? Do you feel, okay, in these landscapes, looking at our models, how how is this type of farmer going to adapt to climate change? What does it mean to even adapt? Can you define that? Are, are you having those internal discussions or do you feel like you already have a adaptation strategic plan within Monsanto? We have plans within the company and we also are working with our external partners constantly to update and change those plans and so you know when i think about the soil health initiatives in particular and these agronomic practices in terms of the adaptation piece i think that you know one of the exciting places when we talk about the research within the ag space around climate and adaptation is really around you know, how do we build these resilient soils? And so I'll just get into the specifics of a couple of the practices. So, you know, the one one practice that has been around for maybe 20, 30 years is, is no-till or uh, reduced tillage on the farm. So typically, you know, before the introduction of herbicide-tolerant crops, the primary method of controlling weeds in a field was to plow relatively deeply. So you plow those weed seeds would go deep into the soil. They couldn't germinate. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have weeds in the field. And so now with the advent in the last 20 years of herbicide tolerant crops, what allows the farmer to do is to spray herbicide over the top of their already germinated crop. The weeds died, the crop doesn't, and then you have a clean field. And that re re results in 
fewer paths you have to drive your tractor over the field less so there's you know less fuel usage and and those types of things but what it also results in is you know if that tractor is not driving over the field you're not compacting that soil as badly and you're not turning it up so you actually store carbon in the soil and the storage of that carbon in the soil helps to build up that makes that carbon that field more fertile so it actually helps with helping to produce yield uh, on that individual acre so that's one thing. The second one, and, and one that's probably <clears throat> more exciting and, and really interesting to folks, is the idea of a cover crop. Uh, so a cover crop is defined as something that you plant on uh, the, the field between the harvest of your primary crop and then the planting of the crop the next spring. And so having that crop on top of that ground over the wintertime has several benefits. The coverage of the field prevents nutrient runoff. So that's a big thing. So especially now, you know, the news with the uh, largest dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico that we've ever seen caused by you know, nutrient runoffs down the Mississippi. That's one benefit. And then the other benefit is that, you know, it actually brings and in, in stores organic carbon into the field when that cover crop dies and you have that buried root mass you have the uh, the biomass on top of the soil and so those things really help to to build up the organic matter in that in that field and one of the results of that is better water retention so when we think about adaptation that soil health you know better water retention in that field talking to farmers uh, in particular uh, at the farm progress show back at the end of august uh, you know they really talk about how when they have a field where they've planted cover crops for several years and they compare it to one that they haven't, especially in the middle of the summer when it really gets hot, you know, they can see the difference. You know, the plants are, are you know, much healthier looking in the fields with cover crops. And so therefore they have to, you know, if they irrigate, they have to apply less water. It's, you know, healthier for the plants. And then at the end of the season, some farmers actually see a yield improvement. You know, one farmer in particular said his yield improvements were, you know, 10% higher in the fields where he has cover crops. So those are the types of agronomic practices that we talk about that both climate friendly, but in an adaptation and a mitigation way. I mean, that's encouraging practices that more farmers are picking up. But I guess what I'm getting at, though, is that those are just tactics to maybe make at a very micro scale landscapes adaptable to climate change. But I'm just curious, is Monsanto having that larger conversation? Are you sort of saying, all right, when we, our scientists look at these climate models and they say these portions of the Midwest are not going to have as much water. I mean, are you starting to think, okay, do we need to get more into seed production that's going to be dealing with less water or do we not even want to emphasize that? And we're going to look at these different, I mean, just at a much larger scale. And you look at, you know, USDA, United States Department of Agriculture. They, they've done some strategic planning around climate change, but and I'm sensing you ha you guys haven't at Monsanto necessarily around adaptation, and I, I would encourage you to just to have those kind of bigger conversations. What does it mean to adapt at the United States level? And have you kind of thought about that as opposed to like what you were just were describing were just sort of prescriptive things that individual farmers could do? Did, did, am I making sense? Yes. Yeah, to, to that point about these practices on individual farms though i think what we've what we found is that the benefits on a per farm basis are maybe modest but when you spread them over you know 90 million acres of farmland in the us then you know the impacts can be huge toward 
the latter point about the larger scale of modeling and those things. Yes, we do that. And, you know, we've worked with some external folks. Uh, one guy in particular who's really, really good. His name is Josh Elliott. And he's done a lot of modeling and published some of his work, you know, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and really looking out. And it's like, what happens to farming trends? You know, as we go out 20, 30, 20, 40, 20, 50 in these climate models, you know, looking at the worst case scenario, if we don't do anything, what does it look like on some mitigation pathway, sort of moderate? What does that look like? And uh, so we take that information and, and think about how the distribution of crops looks. And so, you know, one thing that we know is that sort of the USDA uh, zone. So, you know, people like Garden know this, right? That they are shifting farther and farther north. And so that impacts the kinds of flowers you want to plant in your garden, <laughs> impacts how you choose plants in your garden if you grow stuff for food, but it also impacts farmers. And so we look at that and see, oh, if the current pathway continues, then, you know, where we grow corn today is going to shift north. So we think of the corn belt as Illinois, Iowa, Indiana. But if we continue down this pathway, then the corn belt will shift to the Dakotas, Minnesota, southern Canada. And so if that turns out to be the case, then how do we help those farmers that don't grow these crops today have crops available to grow in that uh, changed climate. And, and so you can imagine that with that kind of data, then you can tailor your breeding programs to look out and say, okay, you know, it may take five to 10 years to uh, conventionally get uh, hybrids bred for a certain geographic location that you want. What do we do if we think in 10 or 15 years that places that we grow corn, we don't grow it today. And the idea is, well, where, where are places that that climate exists today? And can we use our breeding operations and our, our strategy around breeding in the places where that climate exists today to help develop those hybrids that when it's time to grow them in those new places will be ready to go. And I'm sure this is always a challenge for Monsanto, but there, there's always that sort of friction that exists with farmers. And let's say there's a competition among resources between, and this even more so internationally. I lived in Australia for a few years and it was always interesting that they produce actually a lot of cotton out in the outback in Australia. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. And it's an mm -hmm. area that just doesn't get much water and they've created cotton strains that can do relatively well. But there was such a competition between with the broader public and the water use and then you had these cotton farms. And so I guess my point is that and generally Monsanto is probably going to side with the, the cotton farmers just because they're your customers and that's what you do and you're, you're helping farmers. But then you had that real tension between, well, should they have been planting cotton, even GMO cotton out in, in the outback when there's such co competition with the public? And I imagine as the impacts of climate change really increase, there's going to be a lot more of this friction of, okay, what is the best use of resources? And as you said, agriculture is just this huge industry across the world. And I, I hope Monsanto's thinking about this. And how do you head off these these competitions among resources between who's your base, but then, all right, what is the public interest at, at a larger scale? Right. So I grew up in West Texas in the middle of huge cotton fields. And the folks back home deal with this issue right now because those crops – the, the best of the cotton crops back home in West Texas are 
irrigated from the underground aquifer, but the levels in the aquifer continue to, to decrease. And so, you know, when I think about this sort of tension back and forth, I think that it, you know, as much as we can do to help adapt by, you know, breeding better varieties or creating other technologies that, that help adapt to those conditions. Ultimately, I think drivers around climate will actually to, to help change the kinds of, of things that are done on those farms. When you look at, at the, the climate models, you know, it, it just suggests that what places like West Texas may not be compatible to cotton farming anymore. And, you know, that will just have to change. And, you know, I think that you know, there are places where we can look at the models and think, okay, you know, the, the, the types of crops that will be grown in, in different places are going to change. And so, you know, how do we best prepare to, you know, provide the technologies in certain crops to meet those needs in, in the places where, you know, it, it makes sense. Well, and, and this gets into the issue of maladaptation. I'm not sure of how much you've dug into that. So in a situation where you they're growing cotton in an area of diminishing water resources, Monsanto develops a new GMO that it can just cotton can grow even less water. And yet over in the long term, it's still sucking up water resources. Maybe it shouldn't. And so uh, you, you get where I'm getting at. Just like, okay, yep. Monsanto's role, obviously you're feeding a ton of people, but then there is that friction in, in areas that shouldn't necessarily be even growing crops. And so I, I would hope internally that you guys are kind of having those discussions. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, the broader economics will help solve a lot of those issues you know i mean when you think about agriculture and family farms and those things economics really drives those decisions and farmers are highly sensitive to those because it is their business it's their livelihood and so they have to make the smart decisions about what they do and so you know it it really is a partnership between it's a partnership between us, between the farmer, but it's also a partnership with society. And so, you know, how do we navigate that that space in a way that's beneficial to uh, to all? Well, okay, so I want to pivot a bit, and I, I hope you can speak to this a, a little bit because I think it's actually kind of exciting. And I mean, can you speak to through the acquisition of Climate Corporation? Can you talk about that a bit? Yes, yeah, so this is a space that is is really exciting, especially in the sense that you. Know, Everything these days seems to be going towards lots and lots of data. And it's a place where, you know, as we thought about what's, what are approaches that we didn't do at the time that they could really help us to help farmers deal with climate and, and data and how they improve the efficiency on their farms. We acquired the Climate Corporation. And it's really cool because they take in all kinds of data like Weather data. I think they, I think, in fact, they started off as, you know, primarily a weather data company. And so they have very detailed weather prediction capabilities, you know, down to the, the field level on the farm. And so we've coupled that with, you know, other data, uh, soil data, soil type data, soil health data, other measurements. And the thing that I found most interesting when they first became part of our company is when I think when people think of a farm field, um, they think of big square section of land and several acres and they think of it as all the same. And 
as it turns out, it's not. <laughs> the The conditions across that field vary greatly. The soil types vary greatly. The amount of water in different places on the field vary greatly. Uh, the amount of nutrients vary greatly across that field. It, it's very heterogeneous. It's not homogeneous. And so in the old days, the older days, you know, you just said, well, this is my field. I've had the experience on this field for 20 years. This is the type of hybrid I'm going to plant. And, you know, this is the yield I expect to get. And so what Climate Corporation has allowed is to really go in and look at the parts of that field based on all of that data and say, okay, you know, this is not a very productive part of the field. And at the same time, here's another part that's highly productive. And so what we're able to do is to go and take that data on the types of the field and match it to the performance of very specific hybrids. And then what you can do, what the farmers do that's really amazing is as you go through and you're planting that field, you have multiple different types of hybrids in your planter. And there's an iPad in the cab of that tractor that has a prescription for how to plant that field with different hybrids at different rates and all to maximize uh, the yield potential on that particular field. And so, you know, data about, you know, fertilizer rates and timings and all of those things are things that we're working on now to help also change that. But, you know, in, in the first, the first iteration, it was very simply just, oh, can we match different hybrids of different yield potential to the soil type and the conditions in different parts of the field such that places that tend not to be so productive, the productivity can actually go up to some level and we can maximize the places that are really, really good in the field. And and so that sort of the first really exciting thing that came out of climate. And, you know, as I mentioned, now we're working on how do we take data from in the field? So can we create sensors that are spaced throughout the field and they measure the actual amount of nitrogen in the field at any given time? and allow the farmer to go in and specifically apply the right amount at the right time to maximize the usage efficiency by the plant and also minimize the runoff and the impacts on the environment. The New Yorker did a really cool article on this climate corporation, and I think this is just before Monsanto bought. It was, and there's, it's a really cool story, as you well know, one of the People like Google, higher up at Google, spun off and created this group to do this. And what, what's also interesting too is when he, when you guys acquired a uh, climate corporation, he had to mm. write this letter, which I'm sure your PR people just absolutely love because mm. it, it started <laughs> off. He was, he, I think he sent it to his employees at the, the company as it was being acquired. It's just, yes, I, I know Monsanto is considered this evil company, but let me explain. And he goes to great lengths explaining why this was a good partnership and, yeah, I'm sure you guys were very happy with that letter, but it was very interesting and it was very, it resonated with me and I, I was very curious about it. And, but it's been a little bit of time since you guys acquired them and you just described, I think, a lot of what they do. But if you looked at their original mission statement, and I want to read it here to help all the world's people and businesses manage and adapt to climate change. That was the, that was the mission statement of Climate Corporation, I think, before they were acquired by Monsanto. Has that mission statement been scrapped or is it just an unspoken thing? How has Monsanto really, is it a separate entity? Cause that you got the impression, and this was three, four, five years ago, that that was going to, it was going to have a lot of independence. I mean, what's going on with it? Climate 
is part of the the larger company, but they do have quite a bit of independence in the way that they you know think about how they develop products. It's all under the you know our technology organization, but that core mission has not changed. And so when you think about you know the kinds of technologies I just talked about, there are things that we're rolling out you know broadly across the the farms in the U.S. But now it's a technology that is really, really sought out and is being rolled out in South America. And we're finding that farmers in Brazil are, are enthusiastically adopting these data tools because they see the value that they add. And, and it really is about, when you think about, I think of adaptation in the context of climate change and the problem of trying to feed 10 billion people it comes down also to a question of efficiency. And so when you think about that farmer in Brazil and his ability to produce more either on the same land that he has now or because it's Brazil and you know the rainforest and you know it's a highly, highly you know sensitive place and we need to do everything that we can to protect you know those ecosystems that these kinds of tools that allow him to get the most efficiency out of that acre of land, I think that really, really fits into that original mission of, of the Climate Corporation. And, you know, I think it's, you know, broadly in the DNA within within the company. And I, I'll have the link, especially to the New Yorker article. It, it really is fascinating. It's an area I, I don't deal with big data. I'm not a technical person, but just what you described, the sort of fine scale information that even at the farmer level can get to make decisions. I mean, I, they talked about a farmer kind of plugging in the numbers like, oh, had I done this six days ago, I could have produced three and a half more bushels of corn. I mean, you obviously can't predict every little thing, but the amount of information crunching that's going on is fascinating. And it occurred to me, my background is in conservation, wildlife conservation, and the, those mm-hmm. groups do vulnerability assessments and they do li- bits of modeling, but they are just tiny shops. They don't have the resources that Monsanto has or even Climate Corporation has. And when they do these downscaled vulnerability assessments, like, okay, what what will the habitat be for this species in this area? And it's just a crude measurement. And very few really get an opportunity to kind of crunch big numbers to get an accurate assessment of how you downscale these things. And it's just, it would be so useful. And I'm just curious that you guys are in the business of making money, but you look and I look at that mission statement, but I think, have you guys ever partnered or experimented with like working with maybe some other sectors and look what we can do for you here? I think of the fine scale. You work with the land trust. You work with, uh, you know, those, those kind of groups, what they could do with that information. Has that come up? Yes. One of the other things related to this is work that we do in biodiversity. So, you know, there's, we talk a lot about pollinators and the, the issue of honeybees in particular come up a lot. And then there's the issue of monarch butterflies. So we have a, a, an effort around uh, biodiversity protection. And so one of the things you can think about, and we work with, you know, several uh, NGOs externally whose core mission are, you know, these kinds of protections of habitats and ecosystems. And in particular, when you think about the climate tool, so you can take, and there are other data tools that are available that that are similar to this that that can give you this kind of information and it's really interesting so you can look on a farm because like i said you know you have all this data on the productivity of that field and 
there are places where the productivity, you look at it and you say, you know, it really isn't a very good idea to grow corn on that part of the field. And, and so, you know, in, in the process of looking at that kind of data, you can make recommendations. You know, the farmer can say, you know what, this really isn't worth the time or the money to try to get any corn on this part of the field. And so one of the things that is part of our efforts to think more sustainably about the farm is can we partner with those farmers that have those types of places on their field and can we convert that from farmland to pollinator habitat? And so we have a collaboration that we're working on with a, a farmer up in Iowa now who has a large part of his his farm and he's re, he's a really progressive farmer and really interested in, in these types of sustainability things. And so we're working with him to figure out you know, how do we convert part of that unproductive field into pollinator habitat? So, you know, it's in Iowa, so it'd be good for monarch butterflies. Talk about putting in honeybees and, and those types of things. So, yes, that data can be used for those types of conservation things. We have partnerships with uh, the Nature Conservancy. We've done some work with Conservation International. So that type of data can definitely fit into those partnerships. And I think there are a lot of smaller groups too that, you know, Climate Corporation, I don't know if they get into the pro bono work, but I, I would sort of say to you too is that even though you guys have access and just people, the, the, the amount of computing power that this, these groups are working with is to blow your mind. And so it's resources that your average conservation group is never getting access to. And so, but I would say that a lot of these conservation groups and these vulnerability assessments, they're really doing some clever, creative ways to do a vulnerability assessment. And I think actually on your side, you could potentially benefit like if you are working with farmers there's ways of looking at okay what how do we integrate with this landscape more effectively how do i stay farming but how can i improve habitat and so i would encourage you that there is more of this outreach and if you're working with groups like nature conservancy they're doing some in innovative things but i just think there's a lot of smaller groups out there that are just chugging along who just don't have these resources and if you look at a broader landscape scale, they're the ones that really affect change and could benefit from these kind of partnerships. Absolutely. Yeah. When you go back into the office, say, hey, let's do some pro bono work with these, <laughs> the computer time with this, because it would actually be really helpful. They, some of these models, they, they factor in, okay, what, what are the socioeconomic impacts? What are the natural system impacts? And then they, that all, it spits out a concept and then you make your adaptation plans around that. And I would hope that farmers at a landscape level would be able to collaborate in that way. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's absolutely right. I think when you look at the way these tools work, right? So there's, when you think about, there's sort of the scientific data that goes in behind it, which is what drives the kinds of decisions that are made on, you know, what do I plant? When do I plant? And all of those kinds of things. But then, like you said, you can put economic models on top of them, right? And so then it starts to give them a cost-benefit analysis, and and then you might make different decisions. And you know, I think that that's the kind of data that is really useful to the, the broader sort of ecological concerns and and those types of groups. And you know, we're willing to to reach out and, and work with with partners to to do these kinds of things as is appropriate and as we find overlapping values. So. I want to talk a little bit about this last bullet point, driving the fight against climate change in the agricultural industry. And so Monsanto, you're, you're in the business of dealing with farmers. And I, I'm not saying anything new here. Farmers can be quite conservative. These, a lot of people live in rural areas. And I bet if you did some polling that, you know, there's probably a higher number of farmers who are very skeptical about climate change. And so 
you guys have jumped fully in. You've acknowledged that you believe in the science of climate change and you want to do something about it. And you're out there communicating with these farmers and you're working with them to adapt to climate change. But are you actively trying to communicate the broader issue of climate change? What we find is there's a broad cross-section of beliefs around climate change. So I mentioned this one farmer who's highly progressive and he wants to you know, drive his farm to a place that's highly sustainable and does all of these these practices and he's setting it up as a model for farmers all across Iowa. And then, you know, there are other farmers that when you talk to them, it's like, you're absolutely right. Well, I, I don't believe in this. And, you know, it's it runs the entire gamut. But I, I think when you go to any individual farmer, I mean, they experience the impacts of climate change and climate variability every single day on their farm. And they know the impact on their bottom, their bottom line. And, and so I think that from our standpoint, we want to talk to, to the farmers and say, look, you know, you know, this is happening. This is what you see on your field. You know, these are the kinds of tools that are available to help you deal with that. Um, and, and so I tend not to think about it in, you know, those terms of the broader implications of, of climate change, it really becomes a more, really becomes a more personal story to each individual farmer and how that it, it impacts them directly on their, on their farm and, and their bottom line for their families. And in that discussion, that's a place where you, you find common values and you really work to find solutions. And that solution, you know, help that farmer be as productive as he can. But, as I mentioned, you know, at the beginning, we sort of occupy this unique space where we can help with the adaptation, which is their primary concern. But these techniques often provide a not insignificant uh, mitigation benefit. And so it's a really, really good place for us to, for us to be. Uh, it allows us to think creatively about the innovations that we bring. And, you know, I, th- I think that for the most part, our our farmer customers and collaborators that we work with and partner with are, are really receptive to these ideas. <laughs> nice safe answer. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to push a little bit harder too. And this to me is, it's an opportunity for Monsanto as a, as sort of a corporate citizen that you're not going to out there trying to pick a fight with your customers. I get that. And you know, a lot of people that I deal with, even in the conservation world, they'll go out into some communities and they're not, they don't want to throw climate change in people's faces. They get sometimes people shut down and you're not going to make, get anywhere. But at the same time, you're such a big, large organization. And if you're sort of, as you just described that, okay, they're dealing with the impacts of climate change today and now on their farm, but they're not necessarily thinking about the broader issue. And as you acknowledge and Monsanto acknowledges as a company, it's going to get worse if we don't get carbon emissions under control. And so I know there, there must be subtle ways to, and you probably do a little bit of, but I would encourage you keep it up that it's just, you don't shy away from the language of like, okay, humans are causing climate change. It be it even literature for climate corporation that you guys have a role, even subtle ways to influence people because if it's just ignored, then it, they're not going to get a sense of like, okay, well, we're just adapting to the impacts today. It will get worse. And so there's an opportunity for corporate America to kind of play a role. Just, Come on, we've got to step it up, every one of us. And so I, I, I encourage you not to shy away from those. I've said that on, to many guests on this show. Mm-hmm. Right. 
So a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, I don't think that in the direction that we're going, that we shy away from those conversations. And I think in particular, so, you know, every summer into summer, there's this huge ag trade show called Farm Progress. And I was fortunate enough to get to go this year and, and participate. And, you know, all the companies, you know, they bring out their big new shiny tractors and all their latest technologies. And we have a big space where we demonstrate things. And one of the, my, one of my duties this year was to talk about these practices, especially around cover crops and no-till. And you have farmers that come up and say, no, I'm not interested. And, you know, you start to talk about the, you talk about the benefits. And so we always start with the, the, the benefits directly to them. But then we always come back to this broader societal piece, you know, because you know, our, our driver for, talking about climate change and thinking about climate change goes back to the point I made, you know, back at the beginning that ag is the second largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and it is seen as a problem. And our job in talking about our footprint and being carbon neutral and pushing agriculture is so that agriculture can be seen as part of the solution. And so you know, when you frame it in terms of, yes, this climate change is real, it's happening, and these are things you can do to help. And, you know, if you would take on these practices that help decrease nutrient runoff in your field, then it, you proactively take these actions and help to solve that problem. Then you become part of the solution. Um, and people talk about that as part of the solution, which may prevent, you know, other solutions from being imposed. And, and so, you know, when you talk about it in those terms, then, you know, I think that's your foot in the door to to talk about the broader issues. And as you said, you know, we took the leadership position in this. And just last week, uh, our CEO, Hugh Grant, was at a CEO forum, I think, with Forbes. Um, and he reiterated the call for agriculture, you know, as an industry to take on more of a leadership role and partner together because, you know, this is not a problem that we're going to solve by ourselves. And, you know, that's the reason why as part of our uh, approach to climate change, it really is about collaboration, partnerships, and, and really trying to help, you know, create a space where we are seen as part of the solution and not the problem. Well, I'm, I'm just giving you all sorts of great advice here. And I, I would love to see Monsanto, and I've had some traction with it with this podcast that a lot of people just, it rubs them the wrong way when you talk about mitigate. Oh, I got to change my light bulb. I got to do this and that. And it's just, it doesn't drive a lot of people's behavior. But when you do something proactive, like adapt to climate change, it hits them a different way. And it would be great if Monsanto would experiment with sort of marketing language of, you know, we are helping you adapt and it, you, you are doing that, but I'm just saying a specific marketing campaign where you're trying to do outreach to the rural sector of like, okay, you are helping us adapt to climate change and some might kind of be a climate change, but the language of adaptation, I think is a lot more appealing to folks because it's like, oh, we're doing something today, taking action. And this is something I can relate to. So yeah, get your marketing people on a big adaptation mm -hmm. PR and uh, <laughs> I would love to see that. 
It's a great point, and it is part of the conversation, and you know, perhaps it should be a bigger part of the conversation. And you know, I, I got to get one day because you're dealing with farmers. And one of my previous positions, I worked in Georgia with this conservation group, but we dealt with farmers quite a bit in it. And if I have any farmers listening to this, they'll probably send me some nasty email. But it, this notion that farmers are always going to look out for the best interests of their land, and I. I I, I always had a problem with that. In Georgia, like I was there and the director of my organization, we were in South Georgia and in front of a group of farmers and we were talking about conservation tillage. And, it, you know, as you know, it's a great practice to keep the soil healthy. And in Georgia, the, the uptake of conservation, it might have changed now. This was like 15, 20 years ago. You know, it was like 28, 30%, not, I mean, it wasn't even 50%. And there was all sorts of issues with water use and poor irrigation practices. And my executive director said, you know, it's just like, you know, farmers are the, the ones most interested in looking out the, for their land. They want to do what's best for their land. And I just thought, no, that's not true. This, this is, there's money involved. There's like, they're looking to make a living and I don't blame them for that. They're, they're making a living, but it's just, you know, we have to get past this sort of narrative that, okay, they will always do the right thing. You know, they need help and they need explanations and they need information. And I thought that he was almost, and I love my old boss. He was a great boss, but I thought he was almost being condescending mm -hmm. to them. It's like, that's not what's really happening there. Or we would see it that there's 80, 90% of farmers are using conservation tillage. And I know there's a number of reasons why people don't do it, but they're not always going to do what's best for that landscape. And so they have to be prodded or they have to be helped or they have to get the right information. And so I'm totally speechifying here. I apologize, but it's just, it's the, I've dealt with the rural sector and it's always been a mystery to me. Yeah. I guess what I would say in response, at least based on my experience over the last couple of years and thinking about these kinds of things is that I think you're really starting to see a change in the attitude. And it's because, the, the sort of next generation farmers are coming in and, you know, they've been raised in this environment about thinking more openly about technology. I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, how do we get farmers to change practices, you know, it's like you know, a lot of times what you hear is, well, this is the way I've done it and it works for me. And, and I only have 40 chances in my lifetime to produce a great crop. And, you know, these are the things that work for me, but, what you find is that once you get them to a change and adopt to a new practice, then, you know, it quickly becomes this is the way I do it. And, and so what, what I think is happening is that the attitudes are changing to where, yes, I need to do more and I really need to do more to, to think about the health of that farm because especially in the changing climate conditions, it's getting harder and harder. And so I need to do everything I can especially the folks who want to pass that farm on to their children. They really, really want to make sure that, you know, they do the right things for that piece of land because it will keep it productive. Um, and it also increases the value. And so I think those things are, are bigger drivers now than they may have been 15 or 20 years ago. And, you know, for the most part, the, the folks that we work with, you know, are really receptive to these ideas. And so I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic that, uh, you know, within the next five years, 10 years, as we, as we continue down this pathway of thinking more about climate smart agriculture broadly around the world, that, that we can have a big impact on, you know, how our industry as a whole helps to protect the environment. 
So I sort of want to wrap this up. I just had a couple more questions. Um, it's been a fascinating conversation for me. I hope so for you, but absolutely. Okay. So I've talked about partnerships and that I think that's one of the main things that you guys are talking about. And I've alluded to, you know, I have this bias toward conservation groups and there's this issue of adaptation. I, you'll probably think you're further along than you really are. And I would say that, you know, there's other areas that I think Monsanto could be doing on adaptation, but I, I've said this before on the podcast and I don't think a lot of people actually know what adaptation is. And I don't know if, have you developed your own sort of adaptation elevator speech at Monsanto? Like if you're out there talking to a farmer, do you have it? Like I've done this before. I've got, you know, 20, 30 second adaptation elevator speech. Have you put the thought into that? I do not have an adaptation speech. <laughs> That's but okay. It, you know, I'm I was going to put you on the spot if you had one, but if you don't, I don't want you, if you felt like you could do it on the fly, great. But uh, do you think you could? Um, so as I think about adaptation, let's try this on the fly. 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Only 30 seconds. Okay. Let me look at the timer. So in terms of adaptation and the role of agriculture, we need to think about in terms of uh, how do we produce enough food to feed 10 billion people? And we have to do it on less land because, uh, you know, to today's productivity levels, we are not going to be able to produce enough food to feed those 10 billion people. And so we need to take all of the technologies and capabilities that we have and even ones that we have not yet thought of uh, to really uh, drive innovation in agriculture so that in the changing climate conditions that we can meet the needs of all the citizens on earth. Okay. You kept it short. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you my critique because I've done this before. I'll be like, all right, give me your adaptation. I'll give some critique. And I, I think you cover it from the ag sector. I might have just brought in a, a little bit more about the impacts of climate change just because it that resonates. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it, to me, it's a, it's a useful thing because adaptation is this wonky – as you can appreciate, think, what is this again? What, what are you talking about adapting to climate change? And my point is that, especially with conservation groups, they're still not quite sure what adaptation is. There's this Supreme Court justice, and it was regarding a pornography case, and you've probably heard this before, is that Justice Potter talking about porn, he knows it when he sees it. And so people in the adaptation yeah. universe, we're not quite there yet because we're not, do we, do we know what adaptation is when we see it? And that, that, since it's an emerging field, which I think one part of makes it a very exciting field because, you know, we're helping define it. But at the same time, people aren't quite sure what we're, we're doing here. And, uh, I would hope that Monsanto and agriculture would drive this conversation around what really is adaptation. But don't do it alone and don't you do it with farmers. I mean, reach out. I, I still feel like you guys need like a national adaptation strategy and you recruit some partners in other sectors to help you write that if, the, if they want to work with you. And uh, I, you, I think you might feel like you already have it, but I don't see that like on your websites. And I don't see that, that, you know, something very specific around an adaptation strategy. And I think you could benefit from having other sectors contribute to it. Sure. <laughs> you'll get you'll get on it mm-hmm. Monday, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll get this afternoon as soon as Listen, I get it. There'd be benefits from it. Absolutely. And on that note, so is there any sort of like a foundations or community funds that Monsanto runs that like sort of outside groups can apply for? We have a philanthropic arm that's called the Monsanto Fund, and uh, within that organization, we do lots of of outreach grants and those kinds of things. That actually, it, it's one of our our core beliefs is to how do we help improve the communities in, in which we live and work. And so 
Um, if you go online and look for the Monsanto fund, I, I think within what you will, you will find places where you, you can apply for those things or help get involved with those kinds of efforts. Well, there's very little money dedicated to actual adaptation, like shovel-ready adaptation projects. So I don't know if there's any opportunities in those funds, but I think that'd be really interesting for a lot of groups to kind of see what you came up with, what would qualify as an adaptation-funded project. Mm -hmm. So again, more unsolicited advice because (laughs) Mm -hmm. you have lots of resources that a lot of groups don't have. Yeah. And, you know, I think along those lines, in terms of how we talk about these things, what I've really noticed over the last year or so is an increased focus on the environmental benefits and, and, you know, how we can help change that conversation to where, yes, these are the benefits of the types of technologies that we can bring to bear on the problem. And, uh, to your point, we're really focused on mitigation now because of our commitment to be carbon neutral. But I think that as this conversation evolves and grows, that the environmental benefits and, and that lens that we put on on the efforts of the industry as a whole will actually drive towards that adaptation piece. All right. So last question, and you might know this if you listen to the podcast. If you could recommend anyone to come on to the podcast, who would you recommend? <laughs> yes, this is a question that I've anticipated and struggled with for <laughs> more than a few weeks. Um, so here's my answer. There's a, a, a guy that I've met recently that uh, we work with as part of our external group of advisors on uh, climate stuff. His name is uh, Dr. Chuck Rice. He's a professor at Kansas State University. He's, I think, a microbiologist by training. He is a uh, world-recognized expert in soil health and the impacts on soil health. He also was part of the group that won the Nobel Peace Prize a few years back because of his work with the UN and the uh, IPCC. Fascinating gentleman. Loves to talk about soil health and and the things that that we can do in soil health that, that have a direct impact on climate change. So he's an awesome guy, and I think he would have a really good conversation. So, so you have an in with him? Well, I do. yeah, then it, that's always better if someone can help make an introduction. So yeah, if you if you could, that'd be great. I'd be happy to do that, Doug. All right. So I want to let you just get any final words. I know we covered a lot of ground here. I don't know if it was the ground you thought we'd cover, but just any sort of mm-hmm. final thoughts uh, from, from your perspective on what you'd like to communicate to my listeners out there. Just to close things up, you know, I, I think that it's been a really useful and interesting conversation. Uh, and I just want folks to think about uh, how agriculture in general is in a place that uh, is unique when we think about climate issues and, and how uh, the innovations and the technologies that uh, can be brought to bear in agriculture as a whole. This isn't just a Monsanto issue. It's too big a problem for us to solve. But how working together holistically across different technologies, different approaches um, that we can really help become part of the solution to climate change. Okay. Well, I appreciate you coming on. And again, it, <laughs> I had reservations yeah. early on about you coming on, but I, I find that a diversity of voices, we're all going to have to start thinking about adaptation. And it's good that agriculture corporations are going to be a big player. So it was important to, to hear from folks like you. So thanks again for coming on. It was my pleasure, and I'm really thankful that you had us and uh, looking forward to uh, more discussions if it's appropriate. Okay, adapters, until next time, this is America Adapts, the climate change podcast.
Okay, adapters, that is a wrap to this episode. Thanks to Dr. Jeff Seal for coming on the podcast. I realize Monsanto is a controversial company. There are groups out there keeping them honest, and I hope they keep doing what they are doing. That said, I think Monsanto will likely play an increasingly important role in adaptation in agriculture, and I hope we can look at ways to make sure corporate ag doesn't become a source of maladaptation, but true beneficial adaptation. Some more takeaways from the episode. I still think Monsanto needs to internally articulate what their adaptation goals are. The farming community is still somewhat conservative, and Monsanto could play an important role in climate outreach. Companies like Monsanto could easily become sources of maladaptation if we and they are not careful in the years ahead. In the podcast, we talked about cotton. If they keep making new breeds that need less water, it just puts off the inevitable tough decisions of diminishing water supplies. I hope they can lead the transition away from non-sustainable crops. Climate Corporation could be an incredibly important resource not only for farmers but other sectors. If conservation groups and Monsanto can find common ground, there's significant potential into tapping into big data that benefits both sectors. And yes, that's easier said than done. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join, and I'll approve it right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and to see what other listeners are sharing on that Facebook wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. Again, I say this every time and I mean it. I love hearing from you. Just say hi. I hear from people all over the globe. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Seriously, it is the highlight of my week hearing from you. You can do it right now. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on your computer. Just give me an email. Tell me what you think. Tell me what guests you want to hear from. All right. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. All right. Don't forget to check out the website, americadaps.org. And all this information is in my show notes, especially the link to that donate page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.